Mark chapter 14. And before we open God's word, I want to pray for God's blessing as we look into his word and ask him to meet us as we submit ourselves to his word. So would you join me as I pray? God, we're grateful for your wonderful love, that you would send your son for us, that you would send your spirit to be a helper and an advocate for us, a comforter. And I pray that this morning as we open your word, we pray that your spirit would be active amongst us. It's not enough for us just to learn things about you, Lord. We need to meet with you. We need you to speak to us, and we know that the way you speak to us is through your word. So I pray that we would be eager, we would be leaning forward. I pray that we would hear your voice this morning. I pray that you would comfort the afflicted. I pray that you would afflict the comfortable. I pray that you would call the unbeliever and encourage the believer. I pray that you would use your word in all the ways you promised to use your word here in our midst today. And be with me as I preach, Lord. I pray that you would overcome my many frailties and weaknesses. That we might be able to see the glory of Jesus together. In your name we pray. Amen. Do you know what a protagonist is? Good. I'm glad. That means you listened in high school literature, right? A protagonist is the main character of any story, be that a film, a novel, a book, however. Now, I don't often consult Wikipedia, but when I do, I look up definitions. And it had a good one for protagonist. A protagonist is the main character of a story. He or she is the center of the story, making all the key decisions and experiencing the consequences of those decisions. The protagonist is the primary agent propelling the story forward and often the character who faces the most significant obstacles. In other words, if you grasp what the protagonist is about, you will understand and grasp the story. If you pay close attention to the action and the words and the deeds that the protagonist does in any story, you will understand the point of that story. And we've seen as we walk through the book of Mark that the protagonist in Mark is Jesus. Jesus is the main character. Jesus is the one who propels the story of Mark forward. And we have sought over the last 14 chapters to focus our undivided attention on Jesus. We want to lean forward to see what he does to hear what he says, to watch where he goes, so that we might be able to get to know him. Mark consciously puts Jesus as the central character in this book, as the protagonist, so that we might get to know him. And we Christians who follow him already might recognize that we have good reason to keep following him. And those that aren't Christians, as as we look to him, we can see why we should begin to follow him. Because he is most important. We're going to watch Jesus. We're going to listen to Jesus. We're going to follow Jesus. We're going to focus on Jesus all for the purpose of getting to know him better. It's hard to improve on the the 19th century J.C. Ryle's encouragement to pay close attention to Jesus in the Gospels. He said years ago, but this applies even today, I want 
professing Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be acquainted with the principles of Christianity. It is better to be acquainted with Christ Himself. It is well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They are matters pertaining to the King. But it is far better to be familiar with Jesus Himself. To see the King's own face. To behold His beauty. This is the secret of imminent holiness. He that would be conformed into Christ's image and become a Christ-like man must be constantly studying Christ Himself. Now the Gospels, of which Mark is one, were written to make us acquainted with Christ. Surely we cannot know this Christ too well. Surely there is not a word, nor a deed, nor a day, nor a step, nor a thought in the record of His life which ought not to be precious to us. We should labor to be familiar with every line that is written about Jesus. And that's what we're going to do again this morning. We're going to join Jesus and the twelve again and remind ourselves that we can't know this Jesus too well. And as we join Him today in Mark chapter 14, we're going to see Jesus begin something new. We're going to see and witness the most important meal in the history of humanity. We're going to see a story of salvation by substitution. So let's watch Jesus as he propels this story forward. And as he does propel this story, we get to know him. So we get to see Jesus act in three ways this morning. We see Jesus send, we, see, we hear what Jesus says, and we watch and, and we, we see what Jesus shows. First, Jesus sends disciples to make Passover preparation. Now, I'm going to break this up into three parts, and so we'll read each section as we consider each, each point. And so this is from Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 16. And if you have your Bible, you can look at it with me there. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, His disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, we join Jesus again in Mark on Thursday morning of the last week of his earthly ministry here. This is not just any Thursday, but it is one of the most important days, if not the most important day in the Jewish calendar. It's Passover day. Passover was the biggest day in the nation of Israel. It was an ancient, even by the time of Jesus, it was an ancient Jewish celebration. The Passover celebration was dated some 1,500 years before Jesus walked the earth. It was in the time of Moses. Passover celebrated the national deliverance of Israel from enslavement to the taskmasters of Egypt. If you know the Bible, you know the story. 
After 400 years of slavery, God sent Moses from desert obscurity on a mission to lead people away to freedom from enslavement to Egypt. Now, this was no easy task. The Pharaoh or the king did not want to release the Israelites and miss out on all their free labor. So, through Moses, God visited nine plagues ranging from darkness to frogs to boils to gnats that bite to try to force the Pharaoh's hand to let the people go, but nothing worked. But then the tenth plague was different. The tenth plague forced Pharaoh to expel the nation of Israel. This plague was famous because of the visitation of the angel or the messenger of death. Here's how Exodus reports it in Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. In other words, what was going to happen in the Passover was going to be so significant they would totally reorient their calendar. New Year's Day would now be Passover Day. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then with this lamb and the blood, they were to do something very specific. Exodus 12, verse 7 says, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel, which is the top part of any doorpost, of the houses in which they eat it, eat the Passover meal. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So we have roasted lamb, here's what's on the menu, roasted lamb, unleavened bread, bitter herbs. They would not only use the lamb to apply blood to the doorposts and the lentil, they would have bread that is unleavened because God is showing them in that night they're going to have to leave quickly. They're not going to have time to let the bread rise. They're going to have to eat unleavened bread. They're going to have to leave with such haste. And also, they're going to have bitter herbs as a reminder that they, for, of the bitterness of slavery. And here's what happens. So they're enjoying the meal inside their homes. And then we read this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day, the Passover day, shall be a memorial day, shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So do you see what they're celebrating? They celebrate the fact that God passed over the nation and the people of Israel and judged the nation and the people of Egypt. 
And the reason he passed over the people was because there was blood of an innocent lamb without blemish on the doorposts and the lintel of the people's home. Now that is an odd blood. A lamb's blood is an unexpected and odd protection for the people. How could the blood of a lamb without blemish do any good in warding off the hand of God? It was salvation. What's God teaching them in the Passover? It's salvation by means of the death of a lamb. Salvation for the unworthy by death of an innocent lamb. And so that was the original first Passover. Now, 1,500 years on, after centuries and centuries and centuries of celebrating Passover, we join Jesus in the upper room with his 12 disciples. And this idea of salvation for people by the blood of and the death of a lamb was pressed into the Jewish mindset so that everyone understood it was salvation by substitution. It was a lamb dying instead of me. And all Jews knew that they were saved by the death of another and rescued from slavery in Egypt by the judgment of God on that nation. And they were protected because of the blood of a lamb without blemish. They were protected by the blood of a lamb without blemish. Now, generation after generation rehearsed and remembered and recalled this saving work. And over time, the strangeness wore off. Salvation by substitution by the blood of a lamb became normal. It became part of who they were. It was something they celebrated. So 1,500 years after that first Passover, Jesus and his 12 disciples celebrated the Passover. And it would be Jesus' last meal with his followers before his death. Now Mark reports all these details. Now what Mark does is he says, here's all that needed to get ready for the Passover. You'll notice if you look, just glance at the scriptures here, we have a whole lot more detail about the preparation for the Passover than we do about the meal itself. Why? A couple reasons. First, Judas, as we saw in, in, in uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, Judas has already decided to betray Jesus to the Jewish authorities. Judas has already decided to sell Jesus out and to profit from his relationship. And Jesus needed a night with his disciples so that So Judas couldn't know the place that they were going to go before that night. Jesus was a marked man with a bounty on his head, and he needed one more night in hiding. And so we have two disciples, one of them not being Judas, that goes and prepares this place so that Jesus could eat with his followers. Second, we see that Jesus is taking charge even of the details of this last meal. He's not a victim of circumstance. His death is not something that happened that he was surprised by. This was something we saw, we've seen in Mark that he predicted three times that he would die. He, he predicted that the Jewish authorities would kill him. And here he is as the protagonist pressing forward the action, pushing forward all that is to happen. He's not merely a victim of circumstance. He is in complete control, inextricably moving toward his own death on that cross. Jesus needed time with his disciples. He needed 
to prepare them. And he was about to turn 1,500 years of national history on its head. He sent the disciple, two of the disciples, to prepare the Passover so he could prepare for them a new Passover celebration. Before that, we've seen Jesus send. Now we hear Jesus say, he says something unexpected at the Passover meal. Mark chapter 14, verses 17 through 21. God's word says, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now typically, betrayal and death are not the typical conversations of what happened at a Passover. Usually the host or the leader of the meal would ask the youngest child present, they would ask the question, what makes this night different from all other nights? And then they would rehearse the Exodus rescue story. Now, Mark doesn't tell us anything about that exchange. Instead, Jesus says something that no one expected. He says, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, nobody saw this coming. Nobody. This conversation that Mark records in verse 18 was something that was out of the ordinary, completely unexpected, But Passover night, which was meant to be a great celebration, was turned into a a night of great sadness. They recognized that among their number, there was a treacherous rogue who was looking to turn Jesus in. Now, there was nobody there who said, you know what? I always thought Judas was a little iffy. He just seemed a little off. I knew it. Nobody said that. No one even hazards a guess. No one says, oh, it's Judas, isn't it? We need to understand that Jesus and the twelve, they're more than just friends. They're more than just a team. They're tight-knit. They're like family. They had months and years of common experiences that united them together. And they find out to their horror that one of their number would turn against Jesus. They had lived and worked and walked with Jesus for three years. They relied on each other. They had each other's back. They loved each other. They knew every last thing about each other. They w- the last thing they would have expected is that one of their numbers would be a traitor. Now notice how the disciples respond. You see what they say? Mark reports that they say, is it I? Now as usual, their focus is all wrong. You know, if someone says, I am going to be betrayed, it might make a little bit more sense to say something like, wow, that's horrible news. How are you doing with that? Really, who is he so that we can beat him down? Wow, that's hard to hear. How are you? Instead, they focus on themselves and essentially say, each one of them, surely not me. Surely not me. Not me. And then they ask, who is it? What's going on? And Jesus gives a little bit more clarification. 
There were probably other people in the room. There were other attendants. There were people probably also celebrating the Passover with them. And so what Jesus wants to do is help them understand the scope of, 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 the, of where the betrayer comes from. It's not from the outside. It's from the close-knit 12. Verse 20, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, in that culture, people that you shared a meal with, they were the safe ones. They were the ones you knew you could count on. That upper room was supposed to be a safe place, but it was transformed into a room of infamy. Now, and yet, even though Jesus knew that Judas was his betrayer, he does not mention Judas here in Mark's account. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, Judas, he's the one. Even here we see Christ's love for the traitor. He could have called out Judas in front of the rest of them, and maybe Judas would have felt boxed in and forced. Maybe he would have felt like he had no choice, that he was cornered. But Jesus shows even this villainous traitor, he shows him love by not naming him. There was still time for Judas to say, I've made a grave mistake. I shouldn't have done it. I traded you for measly pieces of silver. But he doesn't. Judas had real responsibility for his actions. He chose to betray Jesus. And he couldn't say, I was predestined before the before the beginning of time to do this. I had no choice. That's not true. He chose. And his time was not yet up. He could have reconsidered, but his mind was made up. Even here, in this moment, as Judas has decided to betray Jesus, the love of Jesus is on display for the most unworthy. You still have time. It's as if he's saying, You can repent, you can turn, you can ask for help. But Judas was steadfast in his plan. And Jesus says it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. What a frightening thing to hear. So frightening that it should have gotten his attention. So frightening that he should have said, I don't want that to be me. Jesus doesn't mess around. When he says something, that's what happens. Even these strong and stirring words from Jesus don't do anything to shake his hardness of heart. He was on his way. A hard heart can overcome even direct words from God. A hard heart can ignore any amount of truth. And that's what Judas did here. Now, not only was there a traitor in his midst, there's also a whole bunch of cowards too. Judas betrayed Jesus, but the 11 would all run and defect from Jesus very soon. (coughs) They were enjoying a meal with him at this moment. But when the detachment of Roman soldiers came out to arrest Jesus, they would scatter to the four winds. Jesus was surrounded by a traitor and cowards. He was to face his great hour of agony alone. See what this shows us? Jesus did not come for the honorable and the obedient. 
He came to offer salvation to the traitors and the cowardly. That helps me so much. Because sometimes I like to think of myself as brave and courageous, but you know what? All too often, I'm cowardly. Jesus has come for the traitors and the cowardly alike. He has come to offer salvation for those who recognize that they don't have what it takes within themselves. And he continues to propel this story forward with this most important meal. He sent disciples to prepare a place. He says something unexpected that no one one anticipated. And lastly, Jesus shows the disciples what he's about to do. What's about to happen to him? And beginning in verse 22 to verse 26, this is the crux of and the most important part of our passage this morning. Look beginning at verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now normally, what would happen in the Passover celebration, is that when it came time to break the unleavened bread, the host, the leader of the meal, in this case it was Jesus, he would say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat the Passover meal. And then he would pronounce a blessing. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Now Jesus then breaks the bread, passes it around, and goes off script. In verse 22, take, this is my body. Now think about that. You're a Jew who has lived all of your days celebrating Passover. Imagine that. Imagine you've celebrated Passover every year of your life. And you heard the blessing, and you knew about the bread of affliction. And you sat there with Jesus, and he says, when the bread is broken, take, this is my body. Be shocking. Imagine if, it'd be something like this, even though this analogy falls short. Imagine if you have me over for Thanksgiving dinner. And as we begin, as, as we're about to cut the turkey... I say, listen, can I just have a word? Listen, I think you should be, this, this, the point of this holiday is that you should be thankful for me. That was the point back in the 1700s, and that's the point now. What would you think? You would think, who is this guy? He's a nut. But that's what Jesus does here. Jesus says, take. This is my body. Do you see how he changes the focus of Passover from the deliverance from Egypt to himself? Now, no one there was thinking that Jesus was literally saying, 
that this bread would turn into his, his skin. They all understood the imagery and the symbolism. Passover was full of imagery and symbolism. Just as the bread symbolized the hardship for the nation, now Jesus was saying this bread is going to symbolize something different. What is it going to symbolize? It's going to symbolize his body. It's going to symbolize his body broken. In other words, this bread is going to symbolize his death. He takes the bread and shows his disciples that he would be very soon broken and die. He explains the unleavened bread, not in terms of the exodus from Egypt, but in terms of his own death. When he says, take, this is my body, he is making a gift of himself to a traitorous, cowardly group of followers. He is offering for himself, all of himself, without reserve. He would be broken for them. He's saying, take this. This is a gift for you. Similarly, he he says this in verse 24 when it comes to the cup, the wine. This is the blood of my, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Now normally, there would be the blessing that would say, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who created the fruit of the vine. But again, Jesus turns this and makes this celebration about himself when he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Again, he draws attention to his death. It would not be a quiet death in a, in a, in, in a room with, in a, laying in a deathbed. His mad, his, the manner of his death would be gruesome and it would be bloody. That's why he talks about my blood of the covenant. He mentions, now this, this, this discussion, this pronouncement around the cup is more explicit than the bread. He mentions a covenant. A covenant, if you don't know, is an agreement entered into by two parties. It's similar to a contract. But instead of signing on the dotted line like we do, ancient covenants were sealed or formalized with either blood or the threat of blood. And what Jesus is signaling here is that his death would inaugurate a new beginning for his disciples. A new exodus. No more would there need to be lambs slaughtered for people to remember that God passed over the people. Now there would be the Lamb of God who is slaughtered for all the people so that they could know that one day God would pass over them and not visit wrath upon their head. This is what Isaiah 53 promised way back centuries before. Yet it is the will of the Lord to crush him, him being Jesus. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgression. The way, the manner in which Jesus would bear the sin of many, the anguish that would come upon him would be by his death. Jesus is showing his disciples 
that he had to die so that they might live. And he acted out his impending death by breaking the bread and drinking the wine. He predicted his death three times, but here it's show and tell, it's touch and feel, it's break and taste. Jesus says, by doing this, I am going to die for you. That's why he gave them the bread to eat and the wine to drink. Yet it wasn't clear to them. They, wouldn't under, they would understand more later. Jesus dying for the many was, he, he's dying in their place to begin a new exodus. This is what was promised in the, in the prophet Jeremiah when Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And how do we become his people? How is this inaugurated? By his death. The day of the new covenant for the twelve was nearly upon them. Soon they would eat this meal and not look back on a past rescue, but they would look for they would look back on a rescue by means of the death of their Savior. It's salvation by a bloody substitute. Instead of a lamb without blemish from a flock, we have the Lamb of God without blemish. One who committed no sin, who never thought anything unworthy, who never lusted, who was never greedy, who was never jealous or envious. He was a lamb without blemish. And we need not paint the blood of Christ on our foreheads but we must recognize that his body broken and his blood flowing is for unworthy, cowardly followers like you and like me. What a way to be remembered. Political and military leaders often want to be remembered. They have biographies written. They get streets, bridges, freeways, and elementary schools named after them as a way to remember. But Jesus wants his disciples to to remember something different about him. He wants them to remember his death, so much so that he wants them to rehearse it on a regular basis. Not just how he died, but that he died for traitors and cowards and sinners. He died for the unworthy. His body was broken and his blood was spilled. There would be no passing over for him. He faced the full wrath of God. His body was broken and his blood was spilled. There were no lambs to take his place. He took the place of the lamb. His body broken and his blood spilled. He died in the place of traitors and cowards. His body broken and blood spilled. Jesus, the Son of God, was killed by God the Father so that all who follow him might live. His body broken, his blood spilled. Jesus led his followers on a new exodus away from enslavement to sin and death. 
and on into freedom. How? By his body being broken and his blood being spilled. He was not some kind of witless animal, but he went willingly. Our Savior, body broken and blood spilled, it was him instead of his cowardly disciples. His body broken, his blood spilled, it was him instead of me. It was him instead of you. His death means that all his cowardly people will never have to face the wrath of God because God has passed over us and visited all his wrath on Jesus. That's what's going on here. It's death by substitute. And so what can we say today as followers, as Christians, what can we say? There's many things we can say, but one thing we must recognize is this. We should remember his death, not our past sins. As followers of Jesus, we all know that we continue to struggle against and with sin. And sometimes in the midst of the struggle, we can feel so nasty, so dirty, so unworthy, and we can carry the weight of sin and feel that burden as if it's tangible. We can feel so compromised. You know what? We're better at remembering our sins than the fact that Jesus died so that we might not have to pay the penalty for those sins. Those feelings are real and they're loud and they might be tempted, you might be tempted to think, well, I deserve all kinds of punishment for what I've done. False. True, you deserve punishment, but the punishment has been spent on Jesus. How you feel about yourself does not determine God's opinion of you. Jesus died. His body, His blood given so that we might live. May we as followers of Jesus remember what He has done for us. He died in our place so that we might live. May we remember what He's done. This memorial be something that draws our mind to Him. Instead of receiving what we deserve, we now stand in the death of Christ, as it were, and recognize that He has taken upon Himself what we deserve so that we might receive the blessings that He deserved. May we remember Him, not our sins. And may we also recognize that He covers all who come. A body broken and a blood, blood spilled is a strange way to offer salvation, but it's effective. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you might think that you have done too much, that you have sinned so grievously, that you are so very dirty that there is no way He could ever want you. If you think that, look again at the upper room. These guys were not so different than us. A traitor and cowards. They were unworthy. And yet, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood was offered to them. Your sin and flaws and foibles is real. But so is his death. We can see Jesus pressing forward the action. And that action now falls to you. If you're here and you don't know him, 
He died so that you might live. He was broken so that you might enjoy eternal life. He was killed so that you might not have to pay the wrath that you deserve to pay. He died. No one passed over Him so that God the Father might pass over you. So if you're here and you don't follow Jesus, please talk to someone who you know that does. And for the rest of us, what a Savior. What a King. Praise God we have Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I would never believe that you would make provision for me if I did not read it in your word. I'm tempted to think that you have come for the worthy and the honorable, that you've come for the clean and the neat. You've come for people who have their act together. But that's not true. You've come for people like me. People who are so often cowardly, not willing to step up and be a testimony for you, not willing to publicly align ourselves with you, not willing to take the reputation that you have and put it upon ourselves knowing that we might be compromised. Lord, that's who I am. I'm grateful. I'm grateful, Lord, that you did not say, well, you're not worth my sacrifice. And all of us in this room that are Christians, we can say that too. We're grateful that we can see, hear you dying so that we might live forever. (coughs) We're grateful that you, Jesus, have died so that we might live. We're grateful that there there is no Passover celebration when it comes to you. The wrath of God did not pass over our Savior. Instead, the wrath of God was visited upon our Savior so that the wrath of God might pass over us and that we might live forever. Thank you. I pray for people in this room who are Christians and just feel like they're unloved by God. May the body and the blood speak this morning. Pray for those that are here and they're not followers of you. I pray that you would have the body and the blood speak. Someone's died so that they might live. And we pray for life to spring up everywhere. It's in your name, Jesus Christ, that we gratefully give thanks for your body broken and your blood spilled. In your name we pray. Amen.